Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Welcome once again to Americans Watching the Footy. We are just a couple hours removed from the end of round six, the Anzac round. Only one really close game, but I think we learned a lot about teams. There were games that were super close for a while that ended up blowouts. There were games that were blowouts throughout where some teams got exposed. We're about to get all into that in just a moment. I'm Ethan Castle, coming to you from South San Francisco, California, with my cat, Brian, sitting just a few feet away from me. And I am Benjamin Castle, coming to you from the basement of Morrison Hall in Berkeley, California, with no cat with me, because Brian lives with Ethan. Before we begin our recap of the nine games this round, which we were able to watch in full because this was a round where no games overlapped with each other. That was very nice. Wish that happened more often. I'd like to begin in honor of Anzac round with a toast. To the troops. All the troops. Both sides. If you've watched the British version of The Office, but not the American version, and considering the mix of British and American influences, I don't know which would be more common in Australia. But you have to watch the American version to get the joke. If you didn't, you're missing out. Cheers. This was a round where a lot of sides didn't play their best, but still got the four points. And from that alone, there are a lot of interesting topics for discussion. But the overall theme I noticed throughout Anzac weekend is weaknesses being exposed. Sometimes known issues were magnified. Sometimes new ones emerged, often in absence of a player or a player just not having the touch that they had a week or two prior. Don't get me wrong. The teams who won this round won the games for themselves. But I'm less inclined to talk about strengths for this round for many teams. We're going to get things going with a game that we ended up taking a ridiculous ridiculously long amount of notes on the Friday nighter in Canberra between GWS and St. Kilda, a game that the Saints ended up winning by 17, despite not being able to kick straight at all. Greater Western Sydney, 8-12-60, defeated by St. Kilda, 10-17-77. This game had a lot of things that we didn't necessarily expect. We didn't expect Connor Iden to start on the bench, then go forward. It was something that I thought at first was a sign that Leon Cameron didn't have confidence in the Giants' defense, but turns out he had some flash to good play, even though he didn't make good on his scoring opportunities. I still think Iden belongs more in defense. I didn't expect Max King to end up 1-7 and 1-6 from set shots. Max King showed that the left pocket is his weak spot, and he should probably avoid that. And more than anything, I just didn't expect Greater Western Sydney to be in this game as much as they were. The Connor Iden thing kind of makes me wonder, you know, I've talked a lot about how GWS has a subpar defense. I thought that was on display again in this game. 
The thing is, they have so many more good forwards, and they have Ruckman that can play the forward positions. Both Braden Proust and Matt Flynn took a couple of really nice contested marks that led to scores, but they're so weak defensively. I thought Sam Taylor was poor at best. He did have one really nice play to touch a ball and prevent a Mason Wood goal. But other than that, he was lousy. Lockie Whitfield was quiet. Isaac Cumming was quiet. Nick Haynes was the only one I was actually impressed with at all. He was kind of a one-man stampede, though. And it's hard to do business like that. But here's the thing. GWS clearly has more than six effective forwards. So I'm wondering if maybe they try to spread that out, sort of like the Bulldogs have done. But in reverse. Figure out which of your forwards are your best defenders move them back to a defensive role because you have more than enough guys who can maintain quality play at the forward position. Even though he didn't end up with any goals, I liked how Iden played there. And again, having Flynn and Proust to take contested marks and their decent kicks as well puts you in a spot where you can do something there. But ultimately, this was a game that the Giants lost. Jack Higgins played very well. Four goals, three behinds, 427 meters gained. Thought Jake Gresham played pretty well. And I think this game really reflected well on St. Kilda because they didn't play all that well. They didn't kick well. And still they managed to win by 17. Big concern for the Saints coming out of this one is the loss of Jack Hayes for the season with an ACL rupture. He had started so promisingly. He was finally really getting his AFL career going and he's done. But it looks like the Saints are going to be picking him up for another one-year contract, and that's great news. And Patty Ryder is going to be back from his suspension next week, so that tandem with Rowan Marshall will be renewed. They did get absolutely crushed in hit out 77-19. Clearances were 46-36, to as not only were they without Ryder and without Hayes for most of the game, but Marshall went down to the rooms a couple times, too. But the Giants really couldn't get a lot of results off of it. And that really surprises me, considering the ability that the Giants ought to be having midfield. Callan Ward did impress me. Two goals, one off 21 touches, nine tackles. I remember you said, Ethan, that he was making up for his poor performance against Frio, even though they didn't get over the line here against the Saints. But a quieter game from Steven Canelio and his inability to hit the scoreboard late when the Saints had had so much trouble really sealed it. And despite their ability to get the ball, they didn't really make good on their massive possessions. Not only was it a quiet game for Canelio, it was also a pretty quiet night for Tim Taranto with just 18 disposals. Tom Green was quality. He had 25 disposals, so he didn't end up with any goals, though he did have an entire fan club with a giant tent that said Tom Green fan club. Turns out he spent a lot of his childhood in Canberra and had a whole lot of support there. The biggest positive from this game for the Giants, honestly, was the support. It looked like just about a full house. And considering how abysmal their support's been in Sydney this year, maybe it's an indication that they should be playing more than four games a year in Canberra because it was a good crowd. 11,207, the attendance. Looking at the highlights for St. Kilda, I'd say that along with being impressed by Higgins, this was another very good game for Brad Crouch. Two goals, 23 disposals, four clearances, on the ball when he needed to be created, even more opportunities that he ended up finishing himself. Also a pretty positive game for Josh Battle, 23 disposals, 10 marks, 580 meters gained. 
the numbers don't show it, but I was also really impressed with how Cal and Wilkie played. I thought the week before was the first time I was impressed with the same kill to defense. They didn't get tested a ton because they had possession for a lot of the game. But when they were tested, I liked how most of them played other than Dougal Howard. And to be able to withstand a bad game from one of your fullbacks is a pretty good something. Just four tackles for Wilkie, but they were in really important situations. I was really impressed with him as well. Big picture, I'm very concerned about GWS. You know, I didn't have them pegged for the finals, but I had them looking like a, you know, ninth or tenth place team. And right now, this is this is not pretty. This team looks just lost. It's weird to say that when they didn't even lose by three goals to a top four team, but despite Toby Green being back, I am still not clear on what their identity is. And I feel like there's really not going to be an answer for that until beyond this year and beyond Leon Cameron. As I've said before, I don't know if Leon Cameron's a good coach, and I don't think we're going to know until GWS has another coach that we can compare him to. He's been the guy for so long. I'd like to see what another coach would do with this core, because maybe it proves that this is just a group of players that, while there are some bright pieces, don't really fit together, or maybe they're just not being deployed properly. As impressed as I've been with St. Kilda the last few weeks, I was less impressed with them and more disappointed in GWS. But there's a saying, there's a college football podcast that is an inspiration for sort of our format called The Solid Verbal. And one of the expressions they use is win your clunkers, which means win when you don't play your best game. It's a sign of a good team if you can win when you're not playing your best. And they did that. Just another stat that I want to note at the end of this, the Saints' point differential right now is minus 11 in the first half and plus 149 in the second half. That's definitely partially a reflection of what Max King has been able to do in other games in terms of being able to kick accurately, but it's also a sign that they're able to adjust. They may not have the greatest starts, but they seem like they're able to identify their weakness as well. And that's a plus for Brett Ratton, who's someone that I wasn't too high on coming into this year. I think he's done a really solid job so far. He's also been a pretty funny interview watching some of the programming last night on bounce after the Melbourne Richmond game. But as for this game, sure enough, they outscored the Giants 39 to 11 in the second half, including 28 to 2 in the third quarter. That third quarter was really where the game turned. Moving on to the one really tight finish of the round, it was the opening game of the three-part Saturday slate out in the Central Highlands. Western Bulldogs 9-8-62, defeated by Adelaide 8-15-63. This was a game that the Crows definitely won more than the Bulldogs lost, but I wasn't really blown away by either team. And it was a game that was emblematic of the importance of Tim English to the Bulldogs because Stephen Martin had nowhere near the impact that 44 usually does. A couple of things that stood out to me in this game. First off, the impact of wind at a smaller stadium is a lot bigger than at somewhere like the MCG because you've got shorter grandstands that aren't going to be able to obstruct that wind. So a breeze that clocked in at, I don't know, 12 miles an hour, which is what, 17 or so kilometers per hour, wouldn't usually be that profound of an impact, but it was pretty significant in this game. And the biggest thing, I was very critical of the Crows' defense previewing this game. I said that was why they weren't going to be able to win this game. And their defense actually played great. Tom Duday in particular had his best game of the year by far. It was also a pretty solid performance by Brody Smith. Jordan Butts played decently well, too. 
I was impressed by the Adelaide fullback line as a whole. You mentioned Dude and Butts. Dude held Marcus Bonapelli at bay. Bonapelli again deployed at full forward for much of the contest. Butts won overall against Aaron Naughton, I'd say. And then Billy Frampton neutralized Jamar Hagen for the most part. A few stats that really stand out. Rory Laird with his 30 disposals and 11 tackles. Ben Keyes, he was once again everywhere. 33 disposals, 624 meters gained. Riley O'Brien with 48 of the Crows' 52 hitouts. And like you said, Billy Frampton, not only 26 disposals, but also nine marks and 502 meters gained. And then scoring-wise, Taylor Walker ended up with three but the two guys who really impressed me from the forward lines combined for three goals themselves. It was the two Mooks, Shane McAdam and Ned McHenry. I had mentioned McHenry against Richmond, how he just has a nose for the ball, finds himself in scoring situations, always gets himself in the right spot. I haven't really given much thought to Shane McAdam until this game, but I thought he played exceptionally well. McAdam was someone who was in the goal scoring mix a lot more last year had lost his touch, it seemed, early on in 2022. believe he was dropped for a little bit, but he's been much better in these past couple of games. I just wonder if also having Walker there has taken some of the focus off of him in some respects. And I agree, definitely another good outing for McHenry. Less impressed with Lachlan Gallant, 1-2 on just six touches for him. We've both been clamoring for Riley Philthorpe to enter. And even with O'Brien doing as well as he did in the hitouts, as you said, 48 of those in six clearances, he can't do it all alone, even with Walker taking the occasional Tom Hawkins-like ruck contest in the forward 50. That said, Gallant did have a couple of key plays late in the game. It ended up being Walker who scored the decisive goal with two minutes left, the 501st of his career off of a really bad Caleb Daniel turnover. Bonimpelli eventually got a goal with seven seconds left, but it was too little too late. And then the extra couple seconds lost off of a center bounce ending up needing to be tossed up, which is silly in that it takes time off and kind of punishes the trailing team, but wouldn't have affected the outcome. That basically ensured there was no chance for the Bulldogs to have, you know, a chance at a miracle mark. But they weren't going to win this game anyway, even if that had been done cleanly. So it's a moot point. It's something that probably needs to be fixed, but it didn't affect this outcome. The most adamant to Bulldogs fans may disagree, but I'm with you on that. From a pure statistical standpoint, the two Baileys stood out for the Bulldogs just in terms of how much ground they gained. 788 meters for Bailey Dale, 631 for Bailey Smith, though I think that's really the only way in which he was a huge positive. Josh Shackey was the only other one that really left a positive impression on me from the Bulldogs. A couple goals, six marks, played his best in some tight battles in the goal square. Really the first time I've even mentioned Shackey since talking about his awful blunder in front of goal in the season opener, but he did play well. I also thought Tom Liberatore had probably his biggest game of the year. He ended up with just two behinds, but 33 disposals, 10 tackles, 522 meters gained. And without English out there and without Bonimpelli in that position, with Bonimpelli playing more forward, there are opportunities for Liberatore, and he stepped up finally. However, pretty ineffective game from Adam Trelore. Trelore did have two goals, but I didn't think he played that well. Cody Waitman was all but invisible. As you said, Eugle Hagen had trouble. Bailey Williams did very little. 
Aaron Norton ended up with two goals, but just eight disposals. He did have five tackles. This game leaves me wondering, should the Bulldogs be in panic mode at two and four? It's, I think, a pretty listless performance, whereas other losses, they had either just run into a team playing really well or were undone by their own inability to finish in front of goal. This game, they just didn't play very well. And I think the turnover margin of 79 to 68, the Bulldogs committing 11 more than the Crows, was indicative of just the overall sloppiness with which the Bulldogs played. They allowed many more opportunities for the Crows, and Adelaide really should have been able to blow this one wide open. I do have a lot of concerns about the Bulldogs after this one. It seemed like the adjustments that Luke Beveridge made worked last round, and then you remember, wait, that's against North Melbourne. That doesn't mean shit. And we talked at the very start of the year about a potential grand final loss hangover and the potential for a lot of quick adjustments to be made in attempt to remedy something that probably needs sorting out more over the longer term. And I think that's what's been happening for the Bulldogs these first six rounds. I think they just need to take a step back and look at what has more consistently worked for them. And that will probably lead to greater success within this season. These next five rounds for the Bulldogs have plenty of time for them to right the ship. They're not playing against any super team. The only side currently the eight that they've got in that stretch is Collingwood in round nine. But those are sandwiched between Essendon round seven at Port Adelaide round eight. Yes, that's a tough trip, but I think the Bulldogs should be more than capable hosting Gold Coast round 10 and then in Perth round 11. So a couple tough trips there in terms of the distance. But considering the quality or lack thereof of the opponent, the Bulldogs have no reason to not be able to correct themselves before a big showdown on my birthday against Geelong. They really need to win for the next five games, I think. I think that's a fair statement at this point. They need to enter round 12 against Geelong at six and five. They could easily get there at seven and four. I think they really need to enter it at six and five. And probably would have said that even before this week. Now, obviously, they set themselves back, but there still is a window. Just This was a different game for them. Like I said, their losses before, they ran into Melbourne and Carlton playing at their best. They kicked themselves out of the game against Richmond. This was just, they didn't play particularly well. But again, I do want to credit the Crows. For them to win any game outside of Adelaide is a big step forward. I think over the next couple of weeks, we'll have some conversations about just how good the Crows are. This was, again, the first time I've been impressed with the Crows' defense at all. But the Bulldogs midfield underwhelmed, and that's supposed to be a massive strength, even without Tim English. The middle game of the three on American Friday night, Australian Saturday, I ended up taking a nap, and I don't regret it. Port Adelaide hosted the West Coast Eagles, and, well, Jamie Cripps scored on the very first possession for the Eagles. They got the opening goal, and they didn't score another goal until the fourth quarter. Port Adelaide 18-9-117, defeating West Coast 4-9-33. I wish I had taken a nap during this one, too, but the Eagles fan I am. I sat there, I took it all in, and I realized just how done this era is for West Coast. Yes, there are positives for the power. Port won this game. There's no question about that. But I just saw a lack of effort from a lot of the Eagles and just nothing that really convinced me that there's anything that's going in the right direction at any time 
in the near future. Yes, there are the injuries that have mounted for them over the course of the preseason and these first six rounds, but that is no excuse for not having any effort. They had some okay halfback pressure in the second half. They started looking a bit more like themselves, but at that point, I wouldn't be shocked if Port were giving everything they had because of the margin they had already built. At halftime, it was already a 43-point contest, and it was clear that it wasn't going to get any closer. I was, at least I thought that this game had promise for the first tiny little bit when Tim Kelly got plenty of the ball early, but shocker, he can't score, and he hasn't been able to score since coming over from Geelong. There are two numbers that stand out to me in terms of the first quarter. The numbers are not 1-2, and two, which was the Eagles scoring at the end of the first quarter because Port also ended up scoring 1-2. The numbers are 16-19. and 19. 16 is the number of disposals that Alex Witherden had in the first quarter. You're thinking, all right, 16 disposals, getting plenty of the ball, not a bad thing. I'd say it's a bad thing when you're a defender and you get the ball that much because it means your opponents have spent so much time in the forward half. And that's after the Eagles had the ball in their forward half for the first few minutes altogether. And after that first goal, nothing ever happened from it. The other number, 19, is because the Eagles got called for too many fucking men. Willie Rioli clearly didn't hear someone and stayed on longer than he should have. A free kick was paid, and I think just his sheepish reaction and the utter disbelief at the whole situation can describe so much of the West Coast Eagles in this game and this year. And it makes me wish that the old rule of wiping the score for too many men were still in place. It's a shame that they got rid of that. Carl Amon was not supposed to play in this game. He was a late in after Miles Bergman came down with the flu, but Amon actually ended up playing pretty well. Finished with 25 disposals, 644 meters gained, and a goal. Dan Houston with 33 disposals and a goal. Travis Boak, game-high 34 disposals to go with six tackles. Willem Drew, 26 disposals and 10 tackles. And Connor Rosie ended up being a best on ground and was awarded the Peter Badko medal. 31 disposals to go along with seven marks, five tackles, and eight clearances. He is finally where he belongs in the midfield. I had a whole lot of positives to say about him last year, but when he was pushed forward to start this campaign after signing an extension, which makes absolutely no sense, you think you think that once someone's secured in their contract, they'd also be secure in their place on the field, but I'm not the poor Adelaide list management. We were really critical of him at the start, and I'm surprised it took until the second half of round five to get him back where he belongs. And I'm glad that you mentioned Willem Drew because he had been such a proficient tagger in a couple games where he helped Port Adelaide look less terrible at times and even kept him in it on a couple occasions. He, he didn't really keep him in the game against Melbourne, but he did a very good job against Christian Petraka. That was the first time I really noticed him. And I think if Port are able to get it to better form, he could be a really valuable piece for them. couple other stats of note as we wrap this one up. Ollie Wines also gained 668 meters to go with his 33 disposals and a goal. The way I describe Ollie Wines is that he has no parking brake. I would say that he did miss a beat, but considering his AFib? Alex Witherden, a game-high 702 meters gain to go with his 34 disposals. Bit of a quieter game for 
Patrick Nash held to just 20 disposals. But the question now is, what's next for Port Adelaide? Does this open up the floodgates for them? Or is this just, you know, yay, we got to win a game, we got to sing our song, but this is still a pretty rough year? And unfortunately for them, these next few weeks on the schedule, they're going to have to steal a couple of tough games to really launch themselves back into the conversation. There are opportunities for it. They play St. Kilda up in Cairns this week. Then they host a Friday nighter against the Bulldogs. Then they play North in Tasmania. And then they play at Geelong before hosting Essendon. I think they really need to go four and one in this stretch, though. If they go three and two and head into their bye week, At four and seven, there will be a slim possibility of them salvaging this season as the schedule does get a little bit easier. But ultimately, I think if you're through 11 games at worse than five and six, it's going to be a really tough spot to try to make the finals. But at the very least, they've shown that when they're firing on all cylinders, they can still beat the crap out of bad teams. And that's something they've been good at for the last few years. I say take this performance with the entire salt mine, not just a grain, considering the opponent. Also, you don't expect Todd Marshall and Jeremy Finlayson to each have five goals every week. You can rely on maybe one or two from each of them at least, and you can rely on at least one wow play from Sam Powell Pepper. But I think at this point for Port, even with this win you still got to be looking beyond this season in pretty much every aspect. But at least they have some youth in most parts of the Oval. The same can't be said for the Eagles. And I really liked this tweet that at NotLex682 posted where she said, It's fine to be young and bad, North. Old and good, Cats. Preferable even to be young and good, Swans. But never, ever be old and bad, West Coast. Yes, the Eagles won the flag just four years ago, but it almost seems like it's already too late for them to have not moved on from that era. It seems like their game plan is really easy to follow, and I just think the whole thing at this point needs to be gutted before any real progress is meaningful. And that's a shame considering I was hoping for the older premiership pieces to have a respectable end to their careers, but... That's not happening anymore in Perth. Even if everything goes right for them next season, say they maintain this core, say they have much better luck with health, guys play better, you're probably still looking at maybe sneaking into the eight. You're not looking at anything close to another flag run. So I think at that point, all signs do point to, yeah, it makes more sense to just tear this thing up, rip out all the copper wiring, and get ready for a serious rebuild. And I think the fans would understand that. It's not like they haven't been there before. They've had gaps of 12 years in between their three most recent flags. They know that success doesn't come easy and it doesn't come quickly. It's a little bit easier to stomach because this group did win a flag. You know, if you hadn't won one, you'd be looking at this as a massive failure. But you've got one. It makes it harder to move on for sentimental reasons. It makes it easier to move on for pragmatic reasons. One last question. How many remaining wins do you see for the Eagles? Now, you can never count them out in a home game, but look at how they've played at home so far. How many games do you realistically think they could win between now and the end of the season? They're one and five. They've got 16 games left, eight home, eight away, if you include the away game against Fremantle. So 
nine more games in Perth, seven games out of state. How many do you see them winning realistically? I see them winning two more games in some way, shape, or form. I feel like they can get one of the two against the Crows, probably the one in round 21, and maybe against the Suns or a fluke win at Greater Western City, which may be a bit less of a fluke now considering how exposed they've been. But it's weird to even think about wins for them at this point. I tweeted at the end of this game, Port Adelaide versus the bye, but Port Adelaide actually win. In reference to a video from 2011 when Port Adelaide became the first team to lose to the Gold Coast Suns. That's how this feels. It feels as hopeless as a brand new expansion team, and honestly, even less so because there's less youth. Yes, some of that is because of injury, but a lot of it is just because of how they manage the list. And that's the cost of ending a premiership era. Moving on to the final Saturday game. This was the one we had really put a lot of stock into. It didn't end up as an instant classic, but ended up as a pretty important statement game. Fremantle beating Carlton by 35. Fremantle 14-13-97, beating Carlton 9-8-62. More than 42,000 on hand at Optus Stadium. Great atmosphere and a pretty convincing win for the Dockers, who led by 19 at the half and 32 after three quarters. They did this with Hayden Young and Heath Chapman, both in COVID protocols, but still ended up playing a really good defensive game. I thought Brandon Walker was really solid. Alex Pierce had a nice game. James Aish was quality. Pierce helped shut Harry Mackay down, while Mackay was also limited a bit by a knee injury. Sam Switkowski played his ass off, finishing with two goals, two behinds. The numbers didn't really do it justice. He looked great. Rory Lobb and Lockie Schultz each kicked three. Blake Akers kicked a really nice goal. Will Brody scored one to go with another 27 disposals. This was the Fremantle team that we had previewed at the start of the year, looking like a dominant team up and down the roster. The forwards are doing enough. The midfield's really solid, even without Nat Fife. The defense was really strong without two key players. I thought Griffin Logue did a really nice job being thrust back in, even if his numbers weren't anything special. Carlton was definitely hurt by Mark Pittenett going off early with an injury, but this was the Fremantle show, even with good performances by Patrick Cripps, who clearly the hamstring didn't bother him too much, and Tom DeCone. Adam Shera with an active game as well. 32 disposals for him, seven clearances, five tackles, the midfield battle between him and Andrew Brayshaw was a really engaging part of this game. I would say Brayshaw came on top just because of his greater ground gained despite fewer disposals of being part of a team that just had greater flow. Another stat-heavy game for George Hewitt, who might be an even bigger loss for the Sydney Swans than Jordan Dawson, which is not something I expected to say at the start of this year. But Looking back toward Frio, pretty much everything went right for them from, from the beginning on this one. Jordan Clark definitely had a bit of a resurgence with 22 disposals, 9 marks, 317 meters gained. He was more the player that we saw the first couple rounds, and that's a big plus considering what the Dockers lacked in their back half. The one thing that really didn't go right for Fremantle was Sean Darcy being concussed. He went down to the rooms after the third quarter and was then subbed out for Bailey Banfield. 
So he's out next week, definitely a step back in that regard, and definitely a concern for Fremantle and that he is having trouble staying on the field once again. However, there's another thing about Darcy that I want to highlight, and that's him being responsible for Mark Pittnett going out of the game. In a very early ruck contest, Darcy didn't play for the ball at all. He ended up putting his knee into Pittnett. He was going for the body, and he succeeded. Pittnett was off to the rooms. Jordan Boyd was on at quarter time. I'm surprised that there was no punishment for that act, at least a free kick. And I think that's something that really needs to be highlighted by the league because of just how commonplace these PCL injuries are for Ruckman. And it's very clear that Carlton are not the same without Mark Pittenet. Both games where he's gone down, they've lost pretty handily, and some of the stats reflect that as well. Fremantle, 50-18 to 18 in the hitouts, 56-38 to 38 in the inside 50s. Carlton did win the clearances, props to their midfield group for still being as strong as they are. But without that ruck support, it's just much harder for them to get on the positive end of the majority of stoppages. I think we're starting to really see the forward recipe come into focus for Fremantle. If you get good games out of Lob and Switkowski, you just need one of Michael Frederick or Michael Walters to do anything. Frederick had a couple touches all game, but Walters had a couple goals, including one where he earned a free kick by tackling Chera. That definitely got the fans fired up. And that was part of a swing where the Dockers outscored the Blues 32-2. to Harry Mackay got the first goal of the second quarter, made it quickly, gave Carlton a 20-10 to lead. They didn't score again until Fremantle had gone up by 20. And I thought that the Walters tackle on Chera was something of an exclamation point. The obvious question for Carlton moving forward is, are they really that lost without Mark Pittenet? Or is it just the effect of losing him mid-game? Whereas... If you have a week to prepare, you can set your lineup accordingly, you can adjust your game plan, but is losing him mid-game that devastating? All signs point to yes. Carlton are going to have a tough time in the ruck next week, regardless, because they'll be up against North Melbourne. Maybe Harry Mackay will be back for that. His brother won't. We'll mention that just around the corner. Definitely the possibility for a bounce-back performance or two these next couple weeks, I'm needing to see from them in order to be convinced that they're still all right. Not just a win, but a win where they don't have a ridiculously down quarter. Meanwhile, it's game on for Fremantle. They're going to be Sands Darcy at Cardinia Park. And speaking of North and Geelong, they were next on the docket. They were the opening game of the Sunday action, the middle of Anzac round. And it was by no means Geelong's best performance, they seem to never be able to kick straight against North Melbourne, but regardless, they got home by 60 points at Bluntstone Arena. North Melbourne 9-7-61, defeated by Geelong 17-19-121. A good debut for Ali Dempsey. He had a goal and some good work in terms of setting up others as well. The unselfish play to set up Jeremy Cameron for a chance at an eighth goal late was something that fans and broadcasters alike really appreciated. Cameron finished with seven goals and honestly could have had 10. The three he missed were all makeable shots. Ended up kicking 7-3 for the game. Tom Hawkins kicked 4-1. It was a bounce back game for Brad Close, who was deployed correctly. What I like to describe as a slingshot role where he starts sort of in the defensive half and then kind of rockets his way forward and play goes along with it. 
It was also Cam Guthrie's best game of the year. He ended up with a goal, 28 disposals, and 362 meters gained. And normally, I don't expect him to be a big presence in terms of ground game because you watch Guthrie, you always see when he's handling the ball, he's kind of moving in these big sweeping motions where he usually gives up some space before trying to cut around a defender. This was, I think, his most focused attack. I thought this was a really good game for him overall, but the guy who really stole the show for me, even more than Jeremy Cameron, even with Cameron's seven goals, and the leader in ranking points for the game was Zach Tui. 32 disposals, three tackles, 492 meters gained, and he kind of played all over the ground. He's such a versatile weapon. He's obviously a quality defender. He's not afraid to use the body. He's great for clearances, even though he didn't need to record any in this game the way it wound up. But you've seen him kick massive torps to cover half the field, come close to hitting the roof at Marvel Stadium. And he played up forward as well, ended up taking nine marks, ended up with seven score involvements. But the thing that stands out to me the most about Zach Tui is I've never seen a player who's as good at getting out of tackles as he is. There was one sequence where he was getting tackled, dropped to a knee and managed to end up continuing the possession. He was under pressure for a lot of the time he was out there and still managed to excel. And I think he's one of those guys who, when he's on, it takes the Cats to the top level. When he's just having a pedestrian game, that's fine. He's still a very quality player. But when he's at his best, only four possessions were recorded as contested. He ended up with eight intercepts. But he managed to get out of so much pressure and kind of send the North defense scrambling. And that opened up a lot of the opportunities for Cameron, Hawkins, Stengel, etc. Another good game for Isaac Smith. Only two behinds, but 25 productive disposals and a few tackles. Reese Stanley outdoing Tristan Jerry and Todd Goldstein combined in the ruck, something I never saw coming. Jerry and Goldstein combined for all of North's 33 headouts, while Stanley had 37 of the Cats' 46. I would have never expected Geelong to win in hitouts against that tandem. North did win clearances 38-27, to 27, but... They were usually giving up possession very quickly after those clearances. The trend that I pointed out previewing this game was last year, Geelong kicked poorly and still won both games against North by 20 and 30. This time they kicked poorly, including a 3-7 first quarter, and they won by 60. They could have conceivably won this game by 100. That said, I do want to give credit to Ben Mackay with 12 disposals and 11 intercept possessions on a day where no other North Melbourne defender played even remotely well. He was not only good, he was inspiring in his relentless effort that I'm sure you would have liked to see out of more players for the Eagles. And I think a lot of coaches can point to what he did with his team getting their asses handed to them and him never giving up and playing as one of the best players on the ground, regardless of the score. And that was also with Aaron Hall out, making the effort even more inspiring. However, Mackay did end up being offered a one-match suspension for rough conduct against Reese Stanley in the fourth quarter. I didn't even notice the play. I must have just been pretty checked out at that point. Towards the end of the game, I was really just watching Brian Myers. He ended up with three behinds, although two were tough shots. One was from the right pocket, and he really doesn't kick with his left at all. He had a dribble kick that just rolled wide for a behind like 16 seconds into the game. It was actually a really nice possession. He was pretty active over the first couple minutes and then kind of retreated into the shadows. But with Brad Close playing well, with Zach Tui all over the ground, he didn't have to do a ton. 
did finish with 13 disposals, seven score involvements, and four tackles. He's a really good tackler. I think that's the most underrated part of his game, especially as a smaller forward. He had a steal that set up the Cats' second goal, Brad Close scoring a long one in transition. By the way, did you know Taron Thomas played for North? Because I thought his return was going to be significant. I noticed him maybe three times all game. He finished with 15 disposals and 194 meters gained. Was only on the ground for three quarters at the time. Maybe they were kind of bringing him back in slowly, but the Cats made him a non-factor. Nick Larkey was also pretty silent. That had a lot to do with Mark O'Connor really shutting him down. He is, once again, such an excellent tagger and really made a guy who has had a couple of monster games into a non-factor. Cam Zerhar did finish with three goals. I thought Jai Simkin got away with a couple of pretty dirty plays, actually. If anyone was doing anything suspension-worthy, it was him. He ended up scoring one. And Hugh Greenwood scored a pretty nice one, but this was a convincing bounce-back performance for Geelong. A couple other stats of note as we wrap this one up. Tom Atkins, 13 intercepts, and Brandon Parfit, eight tackles. This was a match where, even though they weren't kicking straight, really everyone for Geelong showed up. It was a quieter game for Max Holmes, but he didn't have to do a ton, especially with Guthrie playing more towards the wing for most of the game. It wasn't like Holmes had that much he had to fill. And I think this gets the bad taste of the Hawthorne loss out of their mouths and sets them up nicely for a huge showdown with Fremantle. They should consider themselves very lucky that that game is at home compared to going to Perth between the travel and the atmosphere there. That said, they've beaten the Dockers on the road pretty convincingly each of the last two seasons. Obviously, this is a far better Fremantle team, but the point remains. Meanwhile, North Melbourne remain North Melbourne. And it's hard for me to judge just how much the Cats bounced back because of the quality of the opponent. And like Ethan asked with the Eagles, I'm wondering just how many opportunities for wins remain for North Melbourne. And I like the guts that David Noble has to try new things because that's necessary with a team that's struggling as much as they are. But they're too Good games have been followed by weak efforts, and each time I think that they might be on the right track, they just end up convincing me that they're further and further away from relevance. I do look at that round 12 game against Gold Coast as a winnable one out in Darwin. Haven't the people of Darwin been through enough? No footy last year, and now they get North Melbourne. We don't know how teams' fortunes are going to change over the coming weeks, but I do think North could definitely win against GWS at home. They get the Suns twice. They do have a rematch with the Swans in round 21 at Marvel, which actually really interests me. I think more likely than not, the Swans will remember the close call they had in round four and really try to give it to them that game. But that's also months and months away. I don't see more than a couple wins remaining for North Melbourne. I think the wooden spoon is right now between North and West Coast pretty clearly. And I'm grateful that this draft class looks to be a deeper one because it may make the loss of the wooden spoon a bit easier to swallow as an Eagles fan, if that does indeed occur. The middle game on Sunday was a game for which I had really high hopes going in. And then at some point in the second quarter, I realized, wait, that was fucking stupid. This is a Q clash. Of course, the Lions are going to blow them off the oval. And they did blow the Suns off the oval. Gold Coast 11-14-80 defeated by Brisbane 21-6. 
132 in front of a disappointing crowd of under 15,000. I really thought that it was going to be better for that, even when it is the Suns hosting this game, just because of the stats of this being the Queensland rivalry. More than anything, this game was the Zach Bailey show. Six goals and a very unsurprising Marcus Ashcroft medal performance. He and Cameron Rayner are probably the two that I ended up being the most impressed with. And with both of them being young 22-year-olds, it ought to make Lions fans really optimistic about what they have in the works beyond this few-year title window. I've talked a lot about Rayner, how disappointing it was for him to get injured last year. He ended up with a goal, two behinds, 20 disposals, five marks, and 433 meters gained. And he was only on the ground for 77% of the game. He's really starting to get back into his fullest form. And he's just an enjoyable player to watch. As for Bailey, he's definitely playing much more forward than I expected. And he's making that count. Six goals came on 17 touches. Charlie Cameron as well had his most productive game thus far this season with four goals straight from 14 possessions to go along with four marks and five tackles. Not sure if I saw a motorcycle from him, but it didn't matter. He was back to what he should be. I do want to give credit to the Brisbane fans who were singing Country Roads, which they play at the Gab after he kicks goals. They kind of brought the Gab on the road with that in what was otherwise an interstate rivalry crowd that really lags behind the others. One downside for the Lions was an injury to Kai Lohman. He ended up getting replaced by Jackson Pryor. It's some sort of ankle injury. Lions got out to an early 30-6 to lead, barely halfway through the first quarter. The Suns did cut to 15 or so a couple of times, but never really posed a threat. I was just very underwhelmed by Gold Coast's performance. We knew their defenders were going to have their hands full, and for the second straight week, they really struggled, with the exception of Sam Collins, but can't really do it all himself, though he did end up with a game-high 12 intercepts. Yes, the stats and the score were aided by garbage time, but I'm just shocked by how inefficient the Suns were once they got the ball inside their own 50. They won hitouts by 14. They won clearances by 7. Another excellent game for Jared Witz, who ought to be in the long list for All-Australian, if we're judging at this point in the season. The Suns ended up with four more inside 50s than the Lions, and yet they scored so deplorably. It was an excellent goal-kicking performance from the Lions, of course. But the fact that the Suns had a similar number of opportunities and like so far behind is really telling. Jared Lyons, by the way, finished with a goal, 30 disposals, 10 tackles, and 873 meters gained. It was really the best midfielder out there, even with the likes of Tuke Miller, who had his 26 disposals, goal in 515 meters. And Noah Anderson, who finished with 33 disposals and picked up 694 meters. Yes, the Suns wasted some opportunities, but even if they had made good on them, the fact is they weren't going to defend well enough to have a shot. Brisbane had so many easy opportunities, even with Sam Collins playing so well. And that the takeaway from most of the commentators and from Stuart Dew was we weren't in this game because we kicked poorly. I think that's the wrong analysis. I think it's our defense sucked. And I don't normally think coaches analyze a game poorly. I think Stuart Dew analyzed this game really poorly. And I think it puts his competence into question. Though he did note that the defense was bad and that Powell was basically the only one who was good. 
it needed to be the far bigger focus rather than we didn't kick straight because those things happen. Liam Crow on Twitter at Crow underscore data underscore Psy posted a graphic from X score that showed just how many shots the Lions were able to get and obviously convert on considering how accurate they were from no more than a 20 degree angle. And I think that graphic tells just as much as anything. Credit to Brisbane for making the most of them. But even a team as talented as the Lions shouldn't have that quantity of easy chances. There was really just no resistance from the Gold Coast defense. And that's my takeaway from this game above all else. The other sort of bright spot, I guess, was Nick Holman kicking three goals. He's usually kind of an afterthought. Matt Rowell, another quieter game from him. Yes, 24 disposals and 13 clearances, but only 297 meters gained. And I don't know how much of it's him underperforming and how much of it is him being misused. It did seem like he was tagging a bit less this game. And I think it may just also be the factor of him playing in a midfield that largely operates through someone else. Nonetheless, considering how talented he is, I think he could be deployed a bit more effectively and be utilized a bit more. At this point, I'm just wondering how much will it take for the Suns to ever get things right? The list doesn't seem to be the issue at least in the forward two-thirds of the ground. And you can expect a team to perform admirably at times from that alone. I mean, that's largely what we thought Adelaide before this week. Heck, we've seen good games from their defense. That game against Carlton, they defended really well. But the only one who seemed to have kept it going since that game was Sam Collins. I find it very likely that some of these best pieces are going to end up leaving when they can and be utilized better somewhere else, even if a more talented coach comes in. So basically, there are going to be a lot more Will Brodies, is what you're saying. I mean, there have already been plenty of Will Brodies. Richmond's Tom Lynch and Dion Prestia are former sons. Charlie Dixon is a former son. The list goes on. They have a good sense of identifying talent. They don't have a good track record with using and deploying that talent. Speaking of Dion Prestia and Tom Lynch, the Anzac Eve clash between Richmond and Melbourne played before 70,000 at the MCG. The Demons trailed this game at halftime, ended up playing an excellent third quarter, overcoming a lot of kicking woes. They ended up winning this game by 22, despite kicking nine goals and 22 behinds. Prestia had a chance pretty early on to give... Richmond, the second goal on the run, and who knows what could have happened from there. This didn't end up ever being a super streaky game because of Melbourne's inaccuracies. If you look at the sheer quantity of scoring shots, you can see how much Melbourne ended up really dominating this game. Richmond 8-6-54, defeated by Melbourne 9-22-76. Even with Sam Wiedemann getting on the end of three goals, and that was with Ben Brown being in there as well, a coaching gamble perhaps from Simon Goodwin, but one that seems to have paid off. Melbourne were so inefficient, but the lack of a run never slowed Melbourne down because they were clearly the more dominant team, and the dam was going to burst at some point, and it did in the third quarter. There was no huge run on the scoreboard, but I think if you looked at kind of the momentum shift, after Bolton nearly scored a big goal that would have made it a 13-point Richmond lead, Wiedemann scored on free kick at the other end. That cut it to two. That was an 11-point swing. The Demons take the lead midway through the third on an Ed Langdon goal and end up 
ahead by 21 after three and 28 early in the fourth. It seemed as this went on that Melbourne taking over this game was an inevitability at some point. A 64-42 advantage in inside 50s for the Demons. They won hitouts 39-27, clearances 37-28. They also ended up with nine more free kicks, although Richmond fans have a lot to complain about from an officiating standpoint. I thought both sides had a lot to complain about, and this was a really poorly officiated game altogether. There was actually, for the first time I've ever seen, a review call that I thought was wrong. Usually, I think they get calls right on replay damn near every time. They missed one. With Melbourne down 7-1 in the first quarter, looked like Max Don had an attempt for a mark at the goal line. He didn't have the mark until the ball had completely crossed the line. Somehow, they gave it to him and said he had it before. And then he ended up missing a really short kick. Ball don't lie. But this was just a really poorly officiated game all around. And I don't think it ended up being the story because the story from this one should be the inevitability of Melbourne playing a great third quarter. Even when they still didn't kick that well, they kicked 5-7 in that quarter. But 12 scoring shots to three was a pretty good testament to where they were at that point. And without a couple of key defenders, they had some sort of unexpected contributors really step up. They were without Jake Lever and Jack Viney. Instead, I thought their best defender, although Stephen May ended up with some really good numbers, as he just about always seems to, I thought their best defender was actually Harrison Petty. Petty's stats did did indicate some of the good work that he did on 17 disposals and seven marks nine intercept possessions, and three score involvements. Being able to be involved like that from the back is pretty impressive, or I guess for a really low-hanging pun, petty impressive. He's not a name that we had talked about much since his return, but this was definitely a huge stride forward for him. Luke Dunstan also played admirably in his Melbourne debut. He did get sandwiched between two players at one point in the second half, but it looked like he was no worse for wear, at least Post game. In terms of the offensive production for Melbourne, we already mentioned Wiedemann's three goals, and those are on just eight touches. Bailey Fritch had two goals, two other goal scorers, Brown, Langdon, Petraka, and Spargo. Spargo with low numbers, but effective when he had the ball in hand. Meanwhile, Petraka had a very quiet first half, just eight disposals, and was then much more active in the second, and Max Gone highlighted after the game just how much Petraka has solidified himself mentally because he said that it would be clear that Christian would be down on himself after having a poor first half in years past, and that is much behind him. But clearly, the best on ground for Melbourne and the player through whom they won this game was Clayton Oliver, and that's of no surprise to anyone. 684 meters game, 13 clearances, He was kind of the driving force that set up the forwards to squander a bunch of points. And 22 of his possessions were contested, which makes his effectiveness even more remarkable. Of course, a lot of activity for Ed Langdon on the wings as well. Another 30 disposal affair for him and just under 600 meters gained. Max Gaughan had most of the job in the ruck and won that battle Luke Jackson was much more effective in the second half than in the first. I think that's kind of the story for the entire team. They got themselves together, I guess not completely considering their continued accuracy woes, but they were more themselves in the second half, and that showed immediately. So another good reflection on Simon Goodwin and his staff for being able to 
get the pieces in the right places and get them mentally back on track as well. For Richmond, Jaden Short finished with 30 disposals, four tackles, and 763 meters gained. Though a lot of that had to do with all of the behinds that they were restarting play from. The one player who really looked good to me for Richmond, especially in the first quarter, was Nick Vlostone, who was pretty much everywhere. 30 disposals, finished with 12 marks, 544 meters gained, 13 intercepts, four more than anybody else. He was sensational, regardless of the outcome. He was every bit as good as anyone other than maybe Clayton Oliver. As much as we saw Richmond operating through short alongside Volta to start the season, it seems like the Tigers are their most natural when going through Vlostone. And ever since he's been back, they've looked like a more composed team in a lot of aspects to the game, though their discipline does leave something to be desired. They had 15 more turnovers than Melbourne, 79 to 64. And you mentioned the issues with the umpiring, but a lot of the free kick margin was still their doing. A lot of the talk surrounding Richmond this week was less about this game and more about Dustin Martin returning to Punt Road. Wish him well. Hopefully he's doing all right mentally. Hope to see him back on the Oval soon. But most importantly, obviously, is his mental well-being. And the team was definitely happy to have him around. And I hope that he puts himself in a situation where he feels better when he's around the team, because that's the sort of network and community you want to have whether or not your club's winning, you want to be a place where players can go and feel comfortable. And with the added emphasis on mental health over the last few years, that's really become magnified. Going back a bit toward the footy side of things and shifting toward Melbourne as we wrap up this game and Anzac Eve as a whole, I think we're really going to start learning more about Melbourne these next two rounds. Yes, they started off the season very well. They're 6-0, and and 6-0 and is 6-0, and however you slice it. But they have yet to play a team that's even in the top 10. All their opponents are ranked 11th through 16th right now, and these next two weeks, they've got Hawthorne, who are just out of the 8 on percentage, and then St. Kilda, who are currently 5th. It's not that they have anything new to prove, it's that I'm wanting to see just how much of their success they're able to keep up against more proven sides thus far in 2022. One other positive for Richmond, they were without Hugo Ralph-Smith, but Josh Gibkiss did play a really good game. Ended up with 12 marks, 6 intercepts, and while this hasn't been the sort of season the Tigers have hoped for so far, their schedule does soften up a bit in the coming weeks. I still would be surprised right now if this ends up evolving into a finals team, but I think their sort of downward swing, their sort of dry spell, could end up being pretty short. And they could end up not dipping as far as some of the teams we've seen fall from the top because this young wave they've got coming around has shown some good signs. And I think Gibkiss having a good game, even without Ralph Smith out there, is a really encouraging thing that they can build off big picture. As frustrating as it can be to be two and four after all the success they've had, to lose on Anzac Eve, which is a pretty important game for them. When you compare their downward swing to someone like the Eagles, who they're playing this coming week, you think to yourself, okay, rock bottom for this team might not actually be that low, and a chance to bounce back and get back into contention could be sooner rather than later. I am dreading that round opener 
from an Eagles perspective, just because I know Richmond's going to wipe the floor with them, and I'm either going to have to stay up extremely late or be up extremely early to watch that. Hopefully, I'll leave that game impressed with Richmond and with a number of positives, but of course, I'll take those with, as I said earlier, the whole salt mine. Moving on to actual Anzac Day concluded just a few hours ago. Perhaps the most misleading final score of the round, Sydney beating Hawthorne by 41 in Launceston. Hawthorne 10-8-68, defeated by the Swans 19-13-109. But Hawthorne had an early 32-0 lead. Sydney did not lead at all until there was 9.54 remaining in the game. And then they just kind of dicked the Hawks down over the remaining stretch. <laughs> I did not expect you to say that. <laughs> But it's completely true, and it seems like the Hawks just ran out of gas or whatever alternative power they were running on near near the end of the contest. And I mentioned this in the round preview, and it's something that I kind of left as an afterthought, but I'm wondering now if this ended up being pretty crucial. If the additional length, and by a smaller amount, the additional width of University of Tasmania Stadium played a factor. Looking at the MCG, it's 161 meters by 138. Marvel is 160 by 129. UTAS is 175 by 145. It is both the joint longest ground along with TIO Stadium in Darwin and the outright widest. And for a team whose success thus far this season has been so predicated on being able to quickly counterattack and run very well, I'm thinking now that that playing on a longer oval really didn't suit their style. And it's the first time in a long time that playing in Launceston, I think, did them no favors. Credit to the Hawks for starting well, as they seem to always be able to do. But how much energy did that great start take out of them? Playing without Changquath Jath really didn't help. They're also without Mitch Lewis. Ned Reeves going to be out for a while with the injury he suffered against Geelong. Sure enough, they got beaten hitouts 40 to 27. Peter Laddams with more hitouts than Max Lynch and Connor Nash were able to combine for. And clearances 41 to 28. And an enormous game from Callum Mills, who finished with a goal, 37 disposals, 11 marks, six clearances, five tackles, 660 meters gained. A pretty complete showing. And Mills was someone I hardly noticed in the first quarter. I was impressed by Tom Mitchell in the first quarter more than anything. And then Mills ended up going onto him and largely neutralizing the 2018 Brownlow medalist. He also had 11 score involvements. And this is against a defense that looked pretty good last week, although that was aided by Geelong not being able to kick that well and had CJ, although he wasn't really the top defender last week. It was more James Sicily. Sicily did finish with 11 marks and eight intercepts, but was by no means dominant. I did think Jai Newcomb played pretty well. He ended up with another 539 meters gained and six tackles. I was also impressed with Blake Hardwick's game. I remember him getting a couple good spoils and and overall just being good in man-on-man contests. And Sam Frost largely did well in neutralizing Buddy Franklin until late. Franklin ended up kicking 3-4. He went wide on a couple shots that he usually takes care of. Wasn't his best game, but he was effective enough. 
Ben Ronk ended up with three goals, had a really nice game as well. And Chad Warner scored two to go with his 24 disposals and five tackles. And again, this was a game with a very misleading final score, game of huge runs and momentum swings. But the guy who I thought put the Swans over the edge was actually Errol Golden. I thought this was his best game of the year so far. The numbers don't do it justice. I thought he was just very active in pretty much everything that was going on as they started to find success. Even if he only finished with six score involvements, they all seem to be at really critical junctures. 20 disposals seems like a benchmark for some people to measure effectiveness and Golden just reached that. But even when he wasn't on the ball, he was always positioning himself very well. He's an excellent runner. He did gain 448 meters, and I think that is a stat that's best representative of the impact that he was able to have. He's also just a very good kick all over the ground. And the thing that I think of the most regarding his success, particularly this game, is that he is still a teenager, and he is playing far beyond his years and in some respects leading the youth group of the Swans despite being the youngest of the bunch. It may have been Isaac Heaney's quietest game of the year. One goal, 15 disposals, six marks. But the Swans were able to overcome that and show that even with a quiet game from him, even with a quiet game from Ollie Florent, they have more than enough weapons to take care of business. And I think that's a super positive takeaway for them. I'm likely giving Florent more credit than you are because he had a couple plays that really helped put the game away in the fourth quarter. With just under eight minutes left, he got wide when there was all sorts of action in the goal square and him getting that space helped him score. And then he assisted on Ben Ronk's goal that I thought was the dagger with just under five and a half to go. And then Ronk scored another following that. Really impressed with Ben Ronk again. Wasn't sure if he was going to stick in the side, but clearly showing his worth. It seemed like Heaney wasn't being used well early on. He did have some time in the midfield in the first half, but when he went forward until some point in the third quarter, the Swans just weren't going to him. All the kicks into the 50 were going to Buddy, and considering his goal-kicking struggles early on, it didn't make much sense. I think Heaney being solidified at full forward in the second half might have taken a bit of attention off Buddy, but overall, I just think that... John Longmire shifting the game plan to not revolve around one target is what ended up setting up the Swans for their greatest success, in combination, of course, with Hawthorne losing gas. The thing is, I don't think the Swans are ever a team that needs to really rely on one main target because they've got so many. One thing that was weird was that Sydney's big run wasn't predicated on a bunch of play from Nick Blakey although that was mostly because they just kept scoring off center bounces, so there was never really a chance for him to start anything from the defensive 50. And that's not a knock on Blakey, that's just being really effective off center bounces. And again, that could have had to do something with Hawthorne being weakened in the rock. And unlike last week, they weren't able to compensate with a bunch of clearances. Callum Mills was often right outside that 50 and may have taken away some of the opportunities that Blakey had, but I don't think anyone is minding that considering just how good of a game he played. However, the Swans don't leave this game unscathed as they lost two players to concussion in the second half. Patty McCartan was distraught after being pulled late in the third quarter, but given his history, eight concussions in his limited action at St. Kilda, it makes sense. Thankfully, the immediate prognosis is that it's something more minor, though obviously that can change 
Logan McDonald was also lost to a concussion in the beginning of the fourth quarter after getting hit in the chin in a contest with Will Day. But the Swans didn't seem to be missing either of them when they made their run, and and that is a great sign for them, and just another demonstration of the insane depth that they have. Unfortunately, they will be missing those guys for a huge game next week when they host the Lions at the SCG. They're in a position where it's not a must-win. Now they're in a position where if they can win without those pieces, it'll be a really profound statement about just how good this team could be. The final game of the round, the main event, the Anzac Day game, with more than 84,000 in attendance. Collingwood ended up winning by 11. Essendon 12-10-82, defeated by Collingwood 15-3-93. A lot of takeaways from this game for both sides. First and foremost, got to mention Jack Ginnivan, the 19-year-old, only the second teenager to ever win the Anzac Day medal. He kicked five goals. The last time the Anzac Day medal was won by a teenager, he wasn't even born yet. Ginnivan was a big part of Collingwood's most accurate kicking effort in 93 years and their second most accurate ever with at least 15 scoring shots in round one of 1929. And that success just makes Collingwood even harder to read for me, considering how they squandered their own opportunities and how their accuracy cost them games against both West Coast and Geelong in the prior weeks. Which type of performance do you see as being more indicative of where Collingwood are as a team? I don't think this game was that accurate of them because their depth guys really weren't all that effective in this game until the fourth quarter. Down the stretch, John Noble made a couple big plays, but it really struggled until that point. Same goes for Taylor Adams. Not a huge game for the Dacos brothers. Jordan Degoe was nearly invisible. Though he's far from a depth guy. It was really Myocek and Ginevan carrying them, and then Jack Crisp, Isaac Quainor, and Darcy Moore with a little bit of Braden Maynard. I didn't think they were firing on all cylinders at all. I think you could say, despite them kicking so well, that in a lot of ways, they won a clunker. They kind of won with maybe one of their two engines, proverbially speaking, operating. That said, it's also tough luck for Essendon, a team whose defense had been so bad. They actually defended pretty well. They ended up with 22 scoring shots to Collingwood's 18, but Collingwood just couldn't miss. And that's just a really tough break because Essendon put up an effort that most often would win them this game. By expected score, Essendon on average would win that game 66-56. to The teams were even in hitouts, but Essendon were plus 12 in clearances, perhaps a bit of an indictment of not only Collingwood's midfield, but Brody Grundy's play outside of the initial ruck contest. But the Bombers weren't able to capitalize on that And it was really Collingwood late who ended up doing more in the clearances once Scott Pendlebury moved up up into the center square in the fourth quarter. I think that was an excellent move, whether that was his own doing as captain or whether Craig McRae decided on that. But I think that, more than any other move, helped Collingwood extend their lead. I want to see what Craig McRae takes away from this game. Brendan Goddard had some interesting commentary pointing out that when Essendon would take possession in the forward half, Collingwood would have a spare defender ready to go to slow Essendon down. 
that I thought speeding the game up would have worked better because, yes, Essendon would have been scoring more, but at the same time, you would have been able to expose their defense. And Collingwood's played well out of faster play. So I was really surprised how they went about that. And I don't know if this will just be a one-off thing or if it's going to be an adjustment moving forward. I mean, we have seen a trend in the last couple seasons where scoring usually goes down as the season goes on, as teams adapt, and also because of weather factoring in. Weather was a non-issue in this game, by the way. But this game makes Collingwood tougher to read, but I think it's for totally different reasons. I think it's much more of the style. And again, this was the first time that I wasn't all that impressed with a lot of their supplemental pieces, although Reef McInnes did have a couple of important plays late. I really do like him, and I think he's going to be a big-time player for a long time. I mean, shit. He's got great hair, and his name is Reef, and he's 19 years old. Almost as good as having dreadlocks in your name being Ryan. Circling back to Jack Ginevan, coming into AFL, not knowing a ton about it, took a while to understand Collingwood are kind of the team everybody hates. Took a while to see why, but with the dyed hair making him look kind of like knockoff Draco Malfoy, I can see why Jack Ginnivan is so good for this villain role. He's a super energetic player who I'm sure everyone hates to play against. One of those guys, love him if he's on your team, hate him if you're going up against him. Although he did have a pretty fun moment after the game where he kind of acted like a super innocent 19-year-old. He seemed genuinely shocked that he won the Anzac Day medal when he was supposed to go up there and speak, and he ended up talking for all of about five seconds. That was pretty endearing. I don't know. Did he think Kane Cords was the only one that voted on it? Though Kane actually did give Ginevan credit where credit was due, which was a surprise within itself. And speaking of peroxide blondes, Essendon's own one of those, Mac Welfie, did have some interesting moments himself. He was, again, really eager to play on the ball, though that did cost him at times early on. He did have a goal that gave Essendon their first lead in the third quarter, but after that, he really just stood out more cosmetically than anything else. Another thing to note for Essendon is there was a lot of focus simply from a quantity standpoint on Darcy Parrish's effort. He had 30 disposals in the first half, and that was a record since 2000. Pat Lipinski focused on him in the third quarter. He ended up with just eight touches then, and after some injury concerns in the fourth quarter, he ended up with six of that quarter for a total of 44. Really, his stat line and the impact that I felt he had ended up being a case of quality mattering over quantity. 31 of those 44 were handballs, and only 15 of them, so just over a third of them were contested. He definitely did some better things in the second half, but I really thought that most of his impact was just nice on the eyes and nice on the stats. This is a frustrating loss if you're Essendon. To lose in front of 84,000 people sucks. To be 1-5 in sucks. To lose when you largely were the better team sucks. But this is a game that makes me think, Not all is lost for Essendon. No, I don't think they're a finals team this year. I don't know if they're even going to crack the top 12. But a performance like this makes me think that they could still end up having the sort of year that I initially thought they were going to have. A sophomore slump, sure, but not something that looks like last year was a complete fluke. Something that looks more like, yes, this is a step back from last year, as was to be expected largely but not a gigantic one, and something that puts them in a position where sort of in year three of this cycle, 
they could be back into a form that could get them towards more finals appearances. Yes, they still have some additions that need to be made to the roster. They've been linked to a bunch of guys for this upcoming offseason. Including Jordan Degoe. But I think as irritating of a loss as this can be, if you're a Bomber fan, I think you can be much more encouraged about the big picture state of the club. And also remember a couple things in terms of players they're still lacking, even with Stringer and Merritt coming back in and Stringer playing pretty well. Harry Jones suffered another setback and is going to need some more time, as well as our favorite name in all of footy, Anthony McDonald tipping Woody. Hey, that rhymes. And secondly, the Bombers started two and six last year and still made finals. So I don't think all is lost for them. I think that they have more working against them this year at this point than they did last year. But I really do. But I don't think you're going to be able to judge this team completely based on these first few games or their overall progress under Ben Rutten based on this year alone. All right, fast forward to the early hours of Tuesday on the West Coast of the U.S. So I guess getting into late afternoon, early evening in Australia, and we have some extra news about the Anzac Day clash, a double injury blow dealt to Collingwood. Firstly, Nathan Kruger is likely out for the season with his dislocated shoulder issue. He's dislocated the same shoulder twice in his two games this year, and the reconstructive surgery is clearly more extensive than what's required for Scott Lysette of Port Adelaide. And secondly, Brody Grundy suffered a PCL injury, which is going to keep him out two to three months. And that was surprising for me to hear, considering how I think he played his best in the fourth quarter. He seemed much more active defensively and just seemed to be caring more. This could open up some opportunities for everyone's favorite American in the league, and by default, also everyone's least favorite American in the league, Mason Cox. When Cox had his action against Brisbane, I thought he was poorly used. He is better off nowadays as a ruck option, and hopefully Craig McRae and the Collingwood List Management will realize that and get him the time where he deserves it. Also, that injury we alluded to for Mark Pitna turned out to be a worst-case scenario for the Blues. He is going to miss two to three months as well with a PCL injury of his own. As we mentioned earlier, maybe it's different when they have time to prepare for his absence, but it's certainly a big loss for Carlton. Game on, Tom DeConing. Moving on to Mark of the Week. First off, a little refresher on the first five winners. They were, in order, Tom DeConing, Mitch Hannon, Trent McKenzie, Mitch Lewis, and Aaron Naughton. So two Bulldogs with Mark of the Week winners. Our three nominees this week, we've got Jordan Dawson over Lockie McNeil. He got his lower left leg onto McNeil's right shoulder as part of his jump to take this one. Then we've got Dylan Moore over Justin McInerney that involved a right knee to McInerney's head. The real impressive part is that Moore stuck the landing. And we've got Isaac Heaney against Denver Granger Barras with a left knee on Granger Barras's left shoulder. Benjamin, who do you have as the winner this round? I have Jordan Dawson. I think that his jump and his stepladder move was the cleanest of the three. Props to Moore for being able to stick the landing. And pretty rare to have two nominees in the same game. Moore's was in the second quarter, Heaney's in the fourth. But I give Dawson the edge. I do as well. I'm going to go Dawson over Moore. I think Moore is pretty clearly second place. 
I think his ability to stick the landing was really neat. But nonetheless, I think the best one overall was Dawson's. It was a really nice move. As for goal of the week, the nominees thus far this season, Michael Frederick for round one, Ali Henry for round two. He actually had nominations both of the first two rounds. Ed Langdon in round three. I still don't think he meant to do that. Shane Bolton in round four and Zach Fisher in round five. This week, we have Kane Farrell with an intercept of Shannon Hearns' kick and finishing from the left-hand pocket. You also have Jack Crisp during the Anzac Day clash with a two-bounce give-and-go with Pat Lipinski that started just within the defensive 50, and he ended up finishing from 45 meters out. But for me, and likely for you, Ethan, as well, the clear winner is Blake Akers. Yeah, this one's not close. No disrespect to the others, but Akers was clearly the best. And then I'd say Farrell was the second best. Crisp was a pretty distant third, but Akers is definitely the winner of this round. And that's one that honestly could crack the nominees at the end of the year. To hit it from such a sharp angle on the run and nail it so cleanly, that's hard to beat. Also, the fact that he got it off the ground as well as he did, it was off a Michael Walters tap and then off the turf and didn't slow him down one bit. I right now have that right up there with Shea Bolton from round four. I still really like that Nan Curvis goal against GWS, even though it didn't even win goal of the week. We both agreed on that one as our pick. Who knows? Maybe that'll stand a chance as one of the extra nominees that they throw in. It may have been even last year that Shea Bolton's mark of the year didn't actually win that round. With that, I think that just about does it for this Anzac round. A lot. We learned a whole lot about a lot of teams, despite many of them not playing their best. And really, I think that's going to be a common theme throughout the season. You learn more about a team when they aren't firing on all cylinders compared to when they are. I think it's really shown us which teams have higher floors, such as St. Kilda getting through on a night when they didn't look their best, Melbourne overcoming an awful kicking performance. That sort of stuff really stood out. And just before we wrap up, I was really surprised by some of the grades that Fox Footy gave teams this round on the report card. There were some ones that really stood out. Adelaide were given an A-plus for their win over the Bulldogs, when I was thinking maybe to kick them down to an A-minus or even a B. Carlton were given a D-plus. I might give them the benefit of the down bump them up a tiny bit with the loss of Mark Pittnett. Melbourne were given straight A's. I'm tempted to move them down to A-minus because of their inaccuracy, even though they were dominant otherwise. Port Adelaide beat the Eagles, and so I have no idea how to rate that. I guess A-plus because it's their first one and it was so convincing. I think they were worth an A-plus. Yes, quality of competition tells us don't have high expectations, big picture off this one game. But within the confines of that game, they did play quite well and deserve to be credited for a good performance. St. Kilda were given an A-minus when I was thinking more B-plus. I think, Ethan, you said straight B. But it was two losers this round whose grades really shocked us. Yeah. GWS was given a C. I thought they were the shits. And Gold Coast, given a B minus, I thought they were miserably bad. I would give the Giants a D minus, and I would give the Suns a straight F. I definitely agree on the F for the Suns. We talked about just how many easy opportunities they gave up. GWS, as always, a little harder to read, but definitely in the D range for me. I know we got pretty long-winded here. You may have been able to notice that we were super tired during a lot of the recording, but we got through it. Thanks for sticking with us. 
As always, you can find all of us together, all both of us, at Americans Footy on Twitter. You can find me at Castle Media on Twitter. You can find me at BenjaminHK01 on Twitter, and you can find Brian Harambe at CatNamedBrian on Instagram. We'll be back with you in just a couple days with our Round 7 preview, and this round, we sadly will have a lot of overlap, so we'll figure out how we're going to divide things up for that. That said, we've got a couple of great games. The two that really stand out are Geelong Fremantle and Brisbane Sydney. Should be another great week of footy. We look forward to discussing it with all of you. We've been getting more and more traction on Twitter lately, which has been great. Been a lot of fun just to interact with more fans, have these discussions, and connect more with people who love this sport where we just don't have as many people to interact with about it because we're halfway around the world. So thanks a lot. 